We don't often hear from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes a Sunday Mass, but we should be familiar with some of its themes. Uh, The beginning of chapter 3, we hear at so many funerals, there is a time for everything, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh. Reminds us of that song from the 60s, to every season, turn, turn. And yet, in the very beginning of the story, we have Koheleth, who's writing Ecclesiastes, which literally translates as the church book, telling us that not much of what we do down here really makes any difference as to what's going to happen to us up there, unless, of course, we are spending our life on earth, storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And though we all like to have an eye to that, to mercy, repentance, and charity, the corporal works of mercy, uh, we find ourselves often too involved, over-involved, totally enveloped in the affairs of everyday life, which are a cause of great anxiety and distress. How are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to send the kids to college? How are we going to make ends meet? How will we provide for the now and the future, especially with the soaring costs of everything and how hard it is to obtain anything with the ongoing supply chain problems? Bukahela said about all those concerns, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, says the Lord. For him, this world and everything in it was passing away. This body was passing away. And so he felt that we should focus more and more on that which is eternal, that which lives on when this life is over, the affairs of the soul. St. Paul picked up that same theme in our second reading to the Colossians when he said there's a battle going on in each one of us, a battle between right from wrong, good from evil, light from dark, life from death. It's the needs of the body or its desires and the soul in mortal combat and conflict with each other. But the body wants things that the soul knows are not good and it should not have. That's the excess and that's often the idolatry. And an idol is anything that is more important to us than God. And we spend so much time in life making idols to worship instead of worshiping the God who made us. An idol is anything more important to us than God, anything that has taken our eyes off of God, anything that has replaced him as the center of my life. And yet we were told to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, which leaves little room for something else to get in and to take its place. Paul reminds us throughout his letters that though there be this conflict, this ongoing battle between good and evil going on in each and every one of us and in all creation, We do have confidence and security in knowing and believing that Jesus has already won the war. And when we find him in the gospel today, he's preparing to take the field of battle. He's been making these preparations for four Sundays now. When we found him a month ago in chapter 9 of Luke, where he announced his destiny and his destination, Jerusalem, the Passover, and his passion. He announced that he was going to die. And then a whole third of Luke's gospel is devoted to that journey, chapter 9 to chapter 19. And here we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 12 as Jesus continues to walk that long and lonesome road to Calvary, stopping along the way to impart lessons and teachings, miracles and repentance to prepare people for what will happen to him and to prepare people for what ultimately is going to happen to them. For where he goes, we must follow willingly and one day hopefully thankfully because he will lead us home to heaven into a world that is far superior to this one that is his promised inheritance to us having made us sons and daughters of god brothers and sisters of each other we all are going to share in his inheritance of new and eternal life getting there is half the battle wanting to be there is the other half In the parable today, Jesus announces this teaching of the rich man and his big barns in response to two brothers, 
fighting over their father's inheritance. That was always a foreign concept to me. We are a humble family from Flint. There's no such thing as an inheritance unless there's a legacy of bad debt that we're going to pass on from one generation to the next. I remember when my father's father died and they were distributing his treasures amongst the family. I got half a bottle of Old Spice and a broken crucifix. I cherish them still. And yet I have seen in my work as a priest how much these disputes over inheritances can destroy families in the wake of a death of a parent, whether it's the selling of their house or their assets, whether it's the equitable distribution of their estate. It seems that oftentimes family and friends become enemies as people are so desperate to get what they think is owed to them, often stepping on others to be able to get it. It besmirches and blemishes the memory of the loved one who has been lost when the focus becomes about the money and the legacy they leave behind. But we are that legacy. And how we handle their estate, how we treat each other during that process very much suggests what we learned from that person who has gone before us, namely their charity, that they have left assets to provide for their family and for their future. And hopefully at the same time, they were storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. And that's the point of Jesus' parable that we could spend only so much time trying to figure out how to make ends meet here on earth. They probably never will because there will never be enough. We'll always want more and the cost will always be rising. But Jesus, inasmuch as he wants to provide for ourselves, our family, and our future, he wants to deal in eternal security. He wants to make sure that we're storing up for ourselves those treasures which will pay off when this life is over. And thus he uses this example of this man who has done very well for himself, quite arguably so. He's had a bountiful harvest. But nowhere once do we see him moved to charity to perhaps bless those whose fields were not as productive, to give some grain to those who had less and even to those who had none. Instead, he's going to keep it all for himself, thinking I'll never have to work again. I'm set for life. As for me, eat, drink, be merry. That is until the grim reaper shows up with his hammer and sickle and says, you fool, this night your life will be required of you. And all these things that you have amassed, to whom will they belong? You can't take it with you. That's a sobering reminder to us. We're so attached to this life and to the people with whom we share it and to the things we have amassed to ourselves during it and to the earthly crowns of fading glory, accolades, achievements, you name it, none of which will speak for us on the judgment day. For the only thing we'll find there is St. Peter putting the scale before us. On the one side will be our sins, on the other side will be our charity, and we'll have to see which showed our greater desire to be with God forever in his presence, in his kingdom, to be with the saints when they go marching in. And so this is a lesson to us as Jesus, who owned nothing, was buried in someone else's tomb after having been born in someone else's barn. He only had the clothes on his back. And so he who had nothing was still willing to give everything, all that he had, his life, every bone, every drop of blood, with blood, sweat, tears, fear, and trembling for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the salvation of our souls, and for the resurrection of our body. He who gave all to win all for all is encouraging us to give some to save at least ourselves and maybe those closest to us, to increase in that desire to see our loved ones in heaven and not just here on earth. So Jesus will continue that road to Calvary. Hopefully it will become less lonesome along the way as we seek to join him and like him, to give all, to gain all, that we might see all in his kingdom.